Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the, of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where carnival season continues and king cakes are plentiful, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where the number 25 Ladybacks defeated number 15 Kentucky on Sunday in Fayetteville. Thank you for joining us for episode 49, Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Lizzie Andrew Borden. Tonight, we'll talk about the August 4th, 1892 murders of Andrew Jackson Borden and his wife, Abby Durfee Gray Borden. The murders occurred during the daylight hours on a busy street in Fall River, Massachusetts, a thriving textile manufacturing town about 50 miles south of Boston. Andrew's younger daughter, Lizzie, became a suspect due to her presence in the house at the time of each of the murders and the confused and conflicting testimony she gave at an inquest held days later. Lizzie was indicted in December of 1892 and stood trial in June of 1893. We'll talk about the era, the Borden family, the murders, the events leading up to Lizzie's indictment and her trial. Then we'll talk about Lizzie's acquittal and her life in Fall River until her death in 1927 at the age of 66. Finally, we'll talk about the alternate suspects and theories put forth by various proponents seeking to either exonerate Lizzie or prove her guilt. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. That's good to hear. Looking forward to horses, hops, and cops tomorrow. Hey, I mean, that's definitely been an impressive uh, little thing for you for you here recently. I mean, maybe you can make some more connections like you did uh, Manny <laughs> Durden, and we can get some good guests coming up. Yeah, I'll see what I can do with the um, – we'll have to see if the new commander is as uh, as open as Commander Gernon is. Right. I mean, it definitely would be something that I would be willing to. I, I mean, it's it's number one, it's a good cause that you're going to. And number two, it's it's something that, you know, has. It has, 
gotten us some pretty interesting, some pretty interesting guests. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. All right, so let's go ahead and get started on the show. I have some updates first mm-hmm. um, on Sedley Alley's case. A an appeal has been filed challenging the trial court's denial of DNA testing for Sedley on behalf of Sedley Alley's estate, uh, mm-hmm. and the Court of Criminal Appeals in Tennessee has yet to set a briefing schedule. Okay. So does that mean that they just don't have a timeline of when this is going to be solved? Is that what? Correct. The what will happen is the uh, the Court of Criminal Appeals, once the record is lodged from the trial court in Shelby County, the Court of Criminal Appeals will set a briefing schedule. Allie's proponents will have to file a brief, and then the state will file an answer brief. <clears throat> and then Allie may be permitted time to reply. Usually they'll set a briefing schedule, but they wait until after the record is lodged. There'll be a transcript from the hearing. Um, they'll have to send up copies of all the documents in the record as far as I think the DNA filing in 2018 or 2019. Mhm. So once all that gets to the Court of Criminal Appeals in Tennessee, they'll set a date that the appellant's brief is due, a date the appellee's brief is due, which is usually 30 days later, and then a date for a reply brief. And so that could least... change if one party asks for an extension of time. I was about to say, Lisa, that's something, though, that I kind of want to play devil's advocate at the same time. Like, I know I kind of asked that, like, they don't have a timeline for this. Like, why not? But at the same time, if I'm hmm, – part of me, too, is like, don't you want to take your time with all of this, too? You know, it's kind of a weird situation with me. Well, there's not really – an appeal is not decided uh, – an appeal is decided based on the evidence in the record at the time that the mm-hmm. order was issued by the court. So they're not going to be able to go to the appeals court with new evidence, et cetera, to try and get this DNA testing. And, and actually, the if you remember, the reason the testing was denied is because the estate does not have standing under Tennessee's post-conviction DNA testing act. Right. We to even request the testing. Last week, didn't we? I'm not or sure not if we talked about it last week or a couple, it's been a couple weeks probably. Cause I don't think yeah. I did any updates really last week. It could be, it could have <laughs> been a couple weeks, but I remember we were talking about how the family doesn't have, you know, right to go back and be like, hey. Correct. Well, yeah, that was that was what I thought would happen with Liddell Lee. Oh, Which okay. we'll get to in a minute. Okay? okay? That was what I was talking about with that case. Um, on Stephen Avery, the he has, of course, filed his appellate brief, 
much to my surprise. I thought mm-hmm. Kathleen Zellner was going to go for round three at the state trial court, and she didn't. I was shocked. Uh, the state's response or appellee brief is due on March 27, 2020. Okay. <clears throat> um, they've gotten a couple of extensions of time. And um, I think could be mistaken, but I think the I think this is the last extension they said they would need. Hmm. Now, I mean, let's be honest here. Who believes that? Well, you, you've got to look at what what Stephen Avery filed. They they have to respond to what Stephen Avery filed, and he right. filed a brief with permission exceeding the limits usually imposed upon. Appellants by the court, so sure, sure. And then uh, Dahlia DiPolito's writ to the U.S. Supreme Court has been set for conference on February twenty-first, twenty twenty. That'll be a week from this Friday. Okay. Um, Stacy Johnson. Sure. Uh, did you have a question about DiPolito? I'm sorry. No, no, I was just saying something to keep your eye on for sure as far as that goes is uh, you right. said a week Friday? Correct. Now, uh, Leon Jacobs, Patricia. Oh, good. If I wanted to, if I wanted to follow this, like, you know, is anyone live streaming or anything like that that where I can follow this as it happens? No. The information I get is from the dockets of the various courts, which are available online. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has a docket online. You can download petitions. You can download appendices filed in support of writs. You can download uh, briefs in opposition to writs. You can download appendices filed in support of those. You can download merit briefs. You can download opinions of the court. You can listen to oral argument. The U.S. Supreme Court website is a very user-friendly, very open uh, site that now has electronic access to everything for current cases starting in about 2017. Earlier than that, you you know you have to go through other sources. Right. But now everything's right. in one place. Okay. And I think their oral argument goes back to like 2010. Oh, wow. So yeah. they kept good records. And people at work think I'm crazy because a lot of times I will listen to oral argument from the circuit courts or the, or the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court or from state courts. It's like, what are you listening? Is that oral argument? <laughs> Why? <laughs> I'm not Wait, listening to music. So let me understand this. I'm not listening to podcasts. They have audio yeah. files too. It's not just written. Correct. They have audio now. It varies from state to state. Um, like Texas doesn't post their audio files, which is crazy. Right. Uh, but like Arkansas, you know, starting at a certain point in time, it's not at forever. I think mm-hmm. Arkansas goes back to 2010. 
Um, they have their oral arguments posted. 2010. That kind of sounds odd. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's just, well, you've got to think about the, the room it takes on a server. Oh, so you're not saying that they didn't report and stuff. It's probably, it's, it's probably that remote. they start where, where they start maybe when they started digitizing the audio. Got you. Okay. Okay. So, but I mean, to go to be able to go back to 2010 and listen to an oral argument at the U.S. Supreme Court, at one of the federal circuit courts, at the Arkansas State Supreme Court, you know, at Louisiana, I don't think Louisiana Supreme Court or Louisiana Circuit Courts have it yet. Uh, it's that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, hold on. I could freaking I could freaking turn around and go listen to the West Memphis Three stuff. Well, late now, because there was nothing. You could, yeah, you could listen. You can listen to the argument. Yeah, you can listen to the argument in the uh, the 2010 appeal that reversed the denial of new trials and ordered it back to judge uh, back to the trial court for hearing. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Remanded it back to the trial court for hearing. Okay. Cool. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. Send me a link. Okay, yeah. You know how good I was with that, huh? Right. <laughs> I'll remind you. Yes, please. That That's always good. When I promise to send you something, you know, if you don't get it the next day, kind of send me a message that says, hey, you were supposed to send me. And you have to tell me what I was supposed to send you. Oh, Okay. Okay. So if it's, you know, that Lizzie Borden video, you uh-huh. have to tell me that Lizzie Borden video. Okay. Because otherwise I'll forget and I'll see I'm going to send you a link and I'll be like, what link am I supposed to send him? <laughs> and then I'll probably end up with some so. random link. Yeah, and then you'll end up with a random link that isn't what you were even looking for. And then if you remember what you were even looking for. <laughs> Which I, I have a feeling that neither one of us can really remember. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Haley can confirm that I have a terrible memory. Yes. So uh, then on Leon Jacob, his petition for discretionary review has been filed at the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, that is seeking to have the Court of Criminal Appeals review the median appellate court decision affirming his conviction mm-hmm. based on his allegation that the indictments, uh, the identity of the victims in the indictments was not proven at trial. What the fuck? Excuse my language, but what the fuck? I know. I, it, it's a, it's a novel, it's a novel theory. We'll see. We'll see where it ha- where it goes. So, because you can't prove the, my victim's identity, I'm gonna be well. Okay. The argument he's making is that the indictment listed the initials MV and MM, mm-hmm. and at trial, at no point during trial, did the state ever say that Megan V was MV in the indictment and 
Mac M was MM in the indictment. Oh, so even though Megan V and Mac M testified at trial under their names, which begin with an M and a V and an M and an M. Uh, Wow. It's a novel theory. It's something, all right. Yes. Um, I I have a feeling, I have a feeling that Leon is driving that bus, and the attorneys want to be paid by his mama. Uh huh. (laughs) So they're gonna they're gonna ride that bus until it goes off the bridge. All I'm saying is, and then be washed their hands. But you get this quote if you have for all of our listeners that have. It's a bold theory, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. Yeah. So, and then um, Stacy Johnson. uh, We talked about this before we went on the air. Uh, He has filed a request for rehearing and a request to stay the mandate of the Arkansas State Supreme Court. On his DNA appeal, uh, mm-hmm. basically he wants to present additional argument and have them review their decision and decide to grant him DNA testing. Uh, well, and I think the reason he wants to stay the mandate is because the mandate would mean that their decision would become final. What's the likelihood he gets what he wants is the question. Um, I, having not read the brief yet, I just, I just found it today. Um, I, I don't know that he's really going to get it because it seems like he's just raising the same arguments he raised in the appeal. He's not presenting him with anything new. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would, I would prefer to read the request and then the the response by the state before I really commit to anything because I, I don't want to misspeak. Okay. And his lethal injection claim, where with other inmates in Arkansas Department of Corrections uh, awaiting their death sentences, uh, that is still pending at the United States District Court. Uh, hearings concluded, I believe, in April of 2019, mm-hmm. and I I don't understand why the judge in that case has not rendered a decision yet. Honest to goodness question, just because you know the political climate we live in, is he just doing it to stall any potential executions? I don't know if that is her motive or not. Oh, it's a female? Okay. Christine Baker, yes. I don't know that that's her motive. Um, you know, it could it, it could very well be. She's just got so much on her plate that um, she has not had time. It's a complex, complicated case. Um, now, Lisa, are we on hold? You know, Theoretically, yes. The state could set a date, but if the 
judge has not made a determination or has not issued an opinion, then she would probably stay any date. Okay. Um, but again, as I was, I was saying, you know, she may have a lot on her plate. We had yeah, my office had a a new judge had taken over for an old judge, and it took him about eighteen months to catch up on all the business that was left behind when the old judge left and he was appointed. There you go. So, yeah, because we waited about I want to say about eighteen months. For a a decision on a motion to remand. Okay. So, and it was simply because he had cases that were set for trial, um, cases that were actively going through with discovery, and those were the cases that became a priority. Right. So, and of course, any any decision is going to be appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Court of Appeal anyway. Uh-huh. So, and and more likely than not, ultimately to the U.S. Supreme Court. But it is an, it's, it's not an action of right. It's kind of a discretionary action. So they could set a date and then they would have to seek a stay with whatever court is reviewing mm-hmm. to prevent the execu- execution from being carried out. Theoretically. Theoretically. Now, I don't know that the state of Arkansas, I don't know that the state of Arkansas will set any dates until this decision is finally entered. Right. And I mean, it wouldn't be the smartest thing for them to do, but. Right. Unless it's gonna, unless they do it, kind of as a strategy to get some movement in this case, you know, to get some movement from Judge Baker to render a a decision. I'm not for. I'm not for playing with people's lives like their cards, but I mean, I guess you got to do what you got to do. Well, I mean, it's the, it's not really playing with them. And who's playing with them? Is it the judge who's had a year almost since mm-hmm. the hearing's concluded? Sure. Who hasn't rendered a decision yet? Could that be playing? Like you said, is she doing it to prevent executions from being set? That's playing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's usually okay. It's the state that gets accused of playing. Good point, good point. When it's all, you know, both sides are going to, both sides are going to make decisions for strategic reasons and tactical purposes in the hopes that that benefits them. And then uh, Liddell Lee, which we uh, talked about a little bit too, um, his sister filed a request, a claim against the city of Jacksonville for uh, DNA, to get TNA testing of evidence against him used at his trial. Mm-hmm. The city of Jacksonville, I don't know why, but they decided 
instead of fighting it on procedural grounds, they agreed to um, allow DNA testing to be conducted. Right. So they we entered into a consent order with the def- with Miss Young's counsel. Um, now the the evidence is not going to be turned over to Miss Young. The state is going to send the evidence to a lab chosen by the def- chosen by her counsel and agreed to by the state, and have that lab conduct testing, and then results are supposed to be sent to both the state and Miss Young's counsel. They're also going to upload fingerprints to APHIS, which is the fingerprint database. Okay. Uh, there's no timetable on when that's going to be accomplished. So wait, they don't but, tell you know, like that's that you've got until so on and so forth to request this DNA? And no. No. They... they the Innocence Project prepared the consent order and did not place any time restrictions or parameters. Then again, I mean, I guess there really isn't any sort of time crunch. I mean, he's kind of already dead. Right. So I mean, uh, I we'll have to see. Came out, but we'll have to see I'm how that comes out. Yeah. And that's the one I thought that they would they would challenge on procedural grounds because – she doesn't have standing under the Arkansas statute. Right. So um I I don't know what the people the the people running Jacksonville are thinking. <laughs> but okay. A lot of people yeah. wonder what the city of Jacksonville is thinking a lot of times. I know. I know. And we'll have to see how that's gonna that's see how that's gonna play out. Yes, ma'am. And then finally, uh Rodney Reed, a hearing or hearings have been set on his tenth state post conviction writ. They'll mm-hmm. start September fourteenth and conclude on September twenty fifth, twenty twenty. Okay. I think uh I don't I don't have a calendar. I can't remember what what day of the week the 14th is this year. The 14th of what now again? September. That would be My birthday. A, one second. Gotta love the handy dandy iPhone. That would be a Monday. Okay, so it'll be the mon- it'll be Monday the fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth, and seventeenth. Possibly the eighteenth, although I don't know. In some jurisdictions, they don't hold court on Fridays. And then the twenty first, twenty second, twenty third, twenty fourth, and twenty fifth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that's two weeks, ten days. Now it may it may conclude earlier than that. It depends on how many witnesses the defense puts forth and how many witnesses the state brings. Right. And his writ to the US Supreme Court or his writ request is still pending. 
Okay. So he's got a little bit of time here. Like I said, I, as I said, when the when the claims were returned, you know, I think he has anywhere between two to five years. Two to five years? Yes. Oh, wow. From 2019. From November 2019. So uh, he certainly extended his clock a little bit there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At this point, it's getting to the point where Rodney may just end up dying in jail. And that's a possibility, although he's only in his 50s. Is he only in his 50s? And 50s is not that old. I thought Rodney was getting a little bit older than that. No. He's three three years younger than I am. Proceed carefully. (laughs) <laughs> I will proceed carefully. Yeah. Thank you. I figured you would. So, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll ha- we'll see how that plays out. Okay. Three to five. And that years. is those are all the updates I really have right now. Right. Well, I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, like I told you before we went live, it looked like we had more updates than we did material on old uh, Lizzie here, but definitely. Um, no, there's there's quite a bit. That's two pages. <laughs> I've only got one. Two pages of it outlined. Then again, it may right. be my iPhone that has it as one. Well, you're I I I don't I still print everything out because I, I I prefer to deal with paper, right? Rather than with something on a screen. Okay. And I'm yeah. hopeless with my phone. I'm constantly saving I'm constantly saving pages and posts and links on my Facebook and Twitter so that when I'm on a computer or on my laptop I can go back and look at them on a computer screen or a laptop screen rather than my phone screen. Yeah, I mean definitely definitely a good thing that uh, will probably save me a lot of time scrolling back and forth on uh, on documents would be to just print them out and have them sitting in front of me. But this works. Yes, that would be much easier for you. Um, if I win the lottery, I'll buy you a computer and a printer. <laughs> okay. So... All right, so you ready to you ready to start talking about Lizzie? Let's talk about some Lizzie. All right. Uh, of course, the Borden murders happened in 1892, which is at the end of the 19th century. It's 127 years ago, and things were very 
very different. Uh, as far as home life, unmarried children lived with their parents. Uh, the well, young men could go, you know, make a life of their own, but usually didn't do so until they were married. Uh, right. The societal. Um, society was very rigid and you were shunned by your peers if they felt your behavior was not fitting of your social station. For example, if a young woman went riding in a carriage with a young man and it got dark before they came back, whether they did anything or not, they both would be thought to have done something wrong, and they would have been shunned. Oh, wow, really? The the girl would be ruined for life, and the young man would not be received by any, you know, any proper families, and it would probably harm his marriage prospects to a degree, at least within his own social circle. Um, in fact, if it, people who've seen the movie Gone with the Wind – a lot of it, it was very much like that. Now, these were New Englanders, not Southerners. Southerners probably took it a little bit farther than New Englanders did. But it was still pretty, you know, pretty crazy. Um, there were advances in technology by this time. However, in police work, there was still no true forensic science knowledge or training or understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Edmund Locard would not open the first forensic science uh, office in France, in Lyon, until 1910. And, you know, Bertillon and, and people in France were studying fingerprints and cataloging fingerprints and and things like that, but it hadn't spread to where American and British and other officers were being trained. In fact, usually that those innovations were remaining within the jurisdiction that they occurred in. They weren't being disseminated widely to the policing public around the world. And so, um, and you know, a lot of concepts that we know of today, like isolating a crime scene, and keeping people out and controlling ingress and egress from the crime scene. All those things were not really as much as as much as they are common sense now, they weren't really thought of then. Right. I mean what? All of this really, as far as this stuff goes, really has been in the past seventy 80 years maybe about you know Correct. what they're doing and that's giving a little bit of credit because I'm not even sure yeah. it was as direct back in the 50s and 60s as it is today. No, it was not. They were starting to they were starting to learn and they were starting to develop those things and you know really when it comes down to it I think though it comes with the widespread training of patrol officers because like in the 50s and 60s 
your crime scene people would be trained to do what they had to do, but then the patrol officers weren't necessarily trained about what to do and what not to do. So, but yeah, keep that in mind. Okay, so there's no forensic science. There's no blood spatter uh, analysis. There is probably rudimentary blood typing. But if a doctor tells you it's okay, then that evidence is not sent off for further examination because the doctor is trusted to be to know what he's talking about, that the, this isn't evidence in your case. It's not related. What the hell gives a doctor authority on that? We'll, we'll get into it a little. We'll get into it a little later. Okay. I'm just kind of setting the stage. Okay. <laughs> cause okay. he's a doctor and cause he's a family doctor. Cause he's a cause doctor. He's presumed to know the family. Right. Yeah. So, um, Fall River, Massachusetts is a city in Bristol County, Massachusetts. It's located approximately 53 miles south of Boston, 17 miles south of Providence, Rhode Island, 20 miles south of Taunton, Massachusetts, and 12 miles west of New Bedford, Massachusetts, 20 miles north of Newport, Rhode Island and 200 miles northeast of New York City. Mm-hmm. And 420 miles northeast of Washington, D.C. It's in New England, and so the people, most of the people would trace their ancestry back to the Pilgrims and the first British settlers to the New World in the 1620s. Right. The name comes from the fact that the city is located on the eastern shore of Mount Hope Bay at the mouth of the Taunton River. And it became, in the 19th century, a leading textile manufacturing center Second at that time only to Manchester, England. Mm. Uh, Fall River also had, by the 1890s, an influx of Portuguese, Irish, and French Canadian uh, immigrants who worked in the, you know, in the homes or in the manufacturing centers downtown. Right. And um, it was actually established in the 1800s. It was settled in the 1670s, but then incorporated in 1803. Hmm. Yes. And one of the founding families of Fall River was the Bordens. Colonel Richard Borden, in 1821, established the Fall River Ironworks, along with Major Bradford Durfee, 
on the lower part of the Ketchikan River. Um, Durfee was a shipwright at Borden owned a grist mill. But they, you know, then they founded, Holder Borden founded the American Print Works. Um, He was an uncle of Richard's. So this is the start of the Borden family, which grew and became, for some of its members, quite wealthy. Unfortunately, Richard had two sons. Uh, in the in that early 1800s period, the inheritance laws were still what was followed from England. Only the oldest son inherits anything. Damn. The second and third sons, the second son is usually meant for the military, and the third son is usually meant for the clergy or the priesthood. Right. I think it was it was primogeniture, only the first son, and that was to keep that was to keep estates and and property within the family. Instead of splitting up between two siblings who may not agree and who may decide to sell, they, you know, only one inherits it and controls it. And then his first son inherits and controls, et cetera, et cetera, and so on. So Andrew Borden had the genetic misfortune to have descended from a line of second sons. So the first sons went on and inherited what their fathers made, and the second sons had to make their own way in the world. Uh, Andrew's father was a fishmonger, so he basically sold fish in the streets of Fall River. Um, He was able to support his family, but they didn't have much more than that. And so Andrew did not want to follow in his father's footsteps. He was the eldest son. I think he was the only son. So he did inherit whatever meager property and possessions and and money his father had. But he wanted to do better. And he worked. He became a cabinet maker and a coffin maker and a carpenter. He became an undertaker, which was not mortuary science as we know it today. Mm -hmm. It was basically making a casket and putting the body in the casket, taking the casket to the – well, actually bringing the casket to the home because everybody was waked in their homes in those days. There were no funeral parlors or funeral homes. And then transporting the the casket – from the home to the cemetery on the day of burial. Right. So, um, so he did that. He also, uh, he apparently began investing in the 1860s during the civil war and he made money. He invested in properties and had rental properties. So he basically, by the 1870s, 
had developed quite an impressive form of passive income. Right. He didn't have to go out and work a nine-to-five job. He had investments that gave him money. He, oh, you know, he, that he didn't. He didn't stop there. He was president of bank. He had textile. Uh, he had you know managed textile firms, textile plants, whatever factories. So I mean, he he kept working. Right. Um, he retired sometime in the 1890s. Probably when he turned 65, I'm guessing. There was no Social Security in those days either. That didn't exist until 1930s. But he had plenty to live on. He he did. He was – he became a very wealthy man. Um, He had been born in 1822. So uh, he became a very wealthy man, but – as with a lot of people who start with meager prospects in their younger days, um, there are like two extremes. There's the one extreme that they spend that money as fast as they make it, and then uh-huh. there's the other extreme where they pinch everything they can get out of every penny. Right. And they're very frugal. And Andrew was known to be extremely frugal, although he also could be very generous. Um, When his second wife's family was about to lose, her favorite sister was about to lose her home, he bought the home and put it in his wife's name so that the younger sister would have a home. Oh, wow. Um. The furnishings in their house were very nice. Uh, the house was kept up and maintained. They always had food. They had plenty of food. Um, you know, he was supporting himself, his wife, two daughters. They had a maid. They didn't have a staff of servants, so they didn't live in a fancy house on the hill. But you know, they had a good roof over their head in a good part of town that was near Andrew's business interests, and he liked it that way. Um, he could be somewhat obstinate as well. And, you know, as with, again, people who have to work hard to make what they make are not going to want to spend it on frivolous things like parties and fancy wardrobes and those kinds of things. Right. Um, so, a lot of a lot of sources say he was a miser and he was a penny pincher and he was cheap, but really, you know, he was just being sensible. And New Englanders are incredibly sensible people. Right. So it was kind of that Yankee sensibility that he just he lived by. Um, and I don't think it's fair to call him cheap or a penny pincher or a miser. Uh, he spent money on things that he thought were necessary, things that would benefit someone 
because he was also a Christian man, but not he's not going to go spend it on a fancy house. Right. Or, you know, fancy clothing. Um, and I think his economies, he really didn't, you know, he, he, his economy was something that affected him as much as it affected his family. You know, right. He used, he used a chamber pot because there was no bathroom in, in the, you know, second story of the house. They had a privy in the basement. So at night and first thing in the morning, he used a chamber pot and he brought it downstairs and he took it outside and he disposed of it. Right. He didn't make anybody do that for him. He did it himself. Nice. In uh, in the 1840s, I think it was around 1845, he married a woman by the name of Sarah Anthony Morse. Uh, some sources say she was the love of his life. They were around the same age. He was 23, and I think she was 22. Um, they were married on Christmas Day. I don't know that necessarily that she was the love of his life. I think that, you know, they were suited to one another. They got on well. Their parents approved. And so they got married. Well, I mean, how many parents um, do you know that not going to approve when she walks in and is like, uh, hey, let me marry this rich guy? She, her her social station was no greater or no higher than his. Um, you know, her family was relatively simple roots as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, they married, it was several years, about six years, until their first child, Emma, was born in 1851. There is some speculation that Sarah may have had trouble conceiving and or uh, suffered miscarriages. Okay. Which is possible, probable, because of the delay in having children, having their first child. Uh, Emma was a very sweet, quiet girl. She was very close to her mother. Um, She was one who tended to sit back and, you know, observe and not participate. She was very even-tempered. A very sweet child. Um, Sarah was a bit mercurial. Some of the sources say that she had a temper and she could be a little odd, which a lot of New Englanders, according to my dad, are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there's no details as to what ways is she odd or what's the temper. And again, you know, you could. You could looking now with what we what little we know about the human psyche, um, probably what she was going through in the efforts to have a child that can wear on somebody. Yeah, and that can make them a little a little off. Um, then in 18, I think it was 1857 or 1858, a second daughter named Alice was born, but she died at about two years old. 
from hydrocephalus, which is the water on the brain that causes swelling. Okay. And pressure. In the 1850s, there was nothing that could be done for a child with that condition. And it was always fatal. Uh, Again, that would explain some of Sarah's difficulties if she if she indeed had any. A lot of this is is multiple sources saying the same things, but there's nothing directly from Sarah that says, you know, yeah, I used to get really mad and sometimes I was a little off and um then in 1860, on July 19th, a third daughter, Lizzie, was born. Unfortunately, within two years of Lizzie's birth, Sarah uh, took ill. And when Lizzie was about two and a half, she passed away. Sarah mm-hmm. did. The cause of death was listed as uterine congestion and uh, spinal, something with her spine. Again, we can only speculate. Uterine congestion could be a miscarriage that didn't clear. Okay, got you. Or it could have been been some form of cancer. Okay. On her deathbed, though, Sarah made Emma promise to always look after baby Lizzie. And Emma made that promise and took it very seriously and did so for most of her childhood and adult life. Right. Um, And then Abby Durfee Gray was Andrew's second wife. Um, She was related somehow to one of the founding families, the Durfees. I don't uh-huh. know exactly how, though, because I, I haven't found any Durfees in, you know, the find-a-grave ancestors that are listed. Um, so I don't know whether she really was a Durfee or whether, you know, she was just more tangentially related to the Durfees. Um, I had also read many, many years ago that she was a cousin of Sarah Morse, which I haven't been able to confirm. Um, At the time she and Andrew were married around 1865, Abby was about 37 years old. She was six years younger than Andrew. Um, So she was a spinster. She had no prospects for marriage. And Andrew was just looking for someone to care for his house and care for his daughters. Right. Definitely not the love of his life. Uh, it was not, no. It was, if anybody was the love of his life, it was probably Sarah. However, I think that through Andrew and Abby did have a good relationship. I think they respected one another. I think they cared about one another. They knew they weren't going to have children. Mm-hmm. And I think they had high regard for one another because, again, when Abby's half-sister, who was her favorite, was about to lose her house, 
Andrew exactly. went in and bought the house and then put it in Abby's name. Right. So he must have had high regard for her and cared about her and wanted her to be happy. His daughter's not so much. There was always some tension between Emma and Abby. Uh, Emma was eventually sent to a boarding school. Lizzie was only about five when they married. She sort of accepted Abby as a second mother, but not really because she still relied a lot on Emma. Mm -hmm. And there may have been some may have been some instances of Emma kind of putting a bug in Lizzie's ear not to rely on Abby. Okay. Um, which is really a shame. Right. Uh, you know, when my parents, I went through, my parents split up when I was 18. Um, but all I really wanted ever was for each of them to be happy. And when they weren't together anymore, they were happy. And so I mean, really, now there were girls. Nothing could be done. There were girls. You know, him, it's not even a divorce situation. His wife died. Right, right. Yeah, correct. Uh, but we'll we'll get into some of the dynamics. A little later. Okay. Uh, at the time that uh, Lizzie and Emma were both born in their grandfather Borden's home in Ferry Street, it wasn't a very big home. It wasn't a very nice home. But in about 1871 or 1872, Andrew had started making money. And seeing a lot of profit from his various ventures. And so he bought the home at 92 2nd Street. Uh, it was originally designed as a railroad apartment building. So it was one apartment downstairs and one apartment upstairs. And it's called a railroad apartment because it's very narrow, and all the rooms connect with one another. There's no hallways. Okay. They're common in uh, in the Northeast, in New mm -hmm. York, in Boston, Fall River. Um, they're not necessarily built near railroad tracks or railroad stations. They're just called that because they're narrow and because the rooms all, you know, are all connected. I think in the South we call them shotguns. Okay. And um, he bought yeah. that, and he had it converted into a one, a single family home. Mm -hmm. He had the water taken out of the second floor because they didn't need it, and he left the water in the kitchen and the water in the basement and had city water connected to the barn. He did not put in bathrooms, which were just coming into fashion during that time. Um, but the family had a privy in the basement, and then they used chamber pots. Mm 
are slot pails. Mm-hmm. Um, he also didn't have, even though it was available, he didn't have the house connected to gas, to light. But again, a lot of people didn't trust hooking your house up to gas. And then right. using that to light the place because they expected that the place would go blow up. So um, him choosing not to use city gas to light the house may have been as much a safety concern or may have been more a safety concern than actually a financial one. Um, Because the interior of the house was very nicely furnished, very nicely decorated. Um, It wasn't you know, a hobble. It wasn't right. in a fashionable part of town, but it was downtown and it was near Andrew's businesses. So he could walk to and from his businesses. And it was also in the area where he had a lot of rental property. Now, um, in the 1880s, we spoke about buying the house for Abby's half-sister who was about to lose her – it was her father's home right? that had passed to her stepmother, and her stepmother was moving out and wanted to sell her half, and the daughter couldn't afford to buy either half. So, um, you know, Andrew, Andrew stepped in and, and bought it for him. Well, that didn't go over well with Lizzie and Emma. And Emma is said to have told Andrew, what you do for her family, you should be doing for your own blood. Really? So Andrew sold Lizzie and Emma his father's house on Ferry Street for $1. Hold up. That enabled them not only to have the value of the property, which was of equal value to the property he bought and put in Abby's name, but it also allowed them to have rents and right. income from rent. Um, and I think we're kind of getting out, glossing over the fact that Abby's kind of a douche. No, Abby's not. Abby's not. No, <laughs> you're, hold on you're missing now. the point. Abby, Abby is. Abby was married to Andrew. Wait, no, 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 not Abby. Abby's not a douche. The older daughter, Sarah. Emma. Well, Emma Emma is trying to look out for Lizzie. And Lizzie was probably, Lizzie was the more mercurial personality. She had a right. temper. And I think Andrew had a bit of a temper too. And so Emma was probably speaking up so that Lizzie wouldn't have to. Because oh, Emma was probably the one that they would listen to. Hmm. Okay. Whereas if if Lizzie said it, they would just poo-poo her away because she was probably the more dramatic of the two sisters. Right. Um. Probably more for her own benefit than anything else, mm-hmm. uh, as we'll see later on. So, uh, but no, Emma and Lizzie never accepted Abby. 
they were very antagonistic toward Abby. And after the property incident, even though their father gave them exactly what they wanted, a property that they owned of equal value, it still wasn't good enough. Hmm. And I think that Lizzie and Emma believed, and I can, I'm only speculating, I think that they believed they were still unmarried because of where they lived and the fact that nobody suitable would court them because they lived on 2nd Street in a house with no gas lighting, no running water to speak of, no toilets, no bathrooms, and a privy in the cellar. Because they thought that they were poor, basically, is what you're saying. That they didn't live to the – they didn't live – Andrew lived well below their means. Right. They lived well below their means. They could have lived in a house on the hill in the in the fashionable part of Fall River mm-hmm. where their rich Borden cousins lived. But I also think in a way, Andrew was trying not to instill that into Lizzie and Emma. Right. He wanted them to take their money and make investments and make money and even be able to support themselves rather than expecting something to be handed to them. But this is also another thing I didn't say about the era of the 19th century. Nobody ever talked about their feelings. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever talked about their state of mind. If somebody wasn't happy, they didn't say it. They didn't tell anybody. They just repressed it and repressed it and repressed it. And sometimes we see that it goes kabooey. So Andrew's not going to tell Lizzie and Emma, look, I'm trying to teach you a lesson, girls. We don't need to live in a big house on the hill. What are we going to do with 16 rooms? We've got 10 perfectly good ones right here. True. Um, And, you know, Emma and and Lizzie weren't going to say, but Daddy, no fashionable boys will court us because we live here. If we want fashionable boys to court us, we need to go move on the hill. Okay. You know, so maybe they could have reached a compromise where Andrew would have said, okay, I'll buy you girls a house on the hill. And I'll make Mm -hmm. it clear to everybody that I want you two to live there. Even though two unmarried women moving out of their father's house and living on their own would have been pretty scandalous. And fashionable boys would not have wanted to court them because of that. Um, So they were kind of (laughs) trapped. And nobody talked about their feelings. And nobody talked about how they resented Abby. And I feel bad Mostly, I feel bad for Abby because I think Abby tried for years and years and years to love these girls and nurture these girls, and they spat in her face. Right. On the regular. And looked down on her because, you know, they didn't have 
a, a staff of servants waiting on them hand and foot. Abby did most of the housework. They had a maid who did cooking and some of the heavy housework, but Abby did most of the housework in the public areas of the house. And Lizzie and Emma had to keep their own rooms. And Abby took care of her room, the room she shared with Mr. Borden. So I feel the person I feel most sorry for is Abby. Right, absolutely. Because she she really, you know, she was doomed from 1865. Right. So um, in the summer about June or July, Emma and Lizzie decided that they didn't want the Ferry Street property because they didn't want to have to pay for the maintenance and upkeep and taxes. So they sold it back to Andrew for $5,000, which is $4,999 more than he sold it to them. So they made a $4,999 profit. And that's a lot of money in those days. That is quite a lot of money because I think the the average um, yearly income for like a laborer or a farm worker was about $380 a year. Middle class was probably about a thousand a year. And having I looked it up on a on a present value site yesterday. At the time Andrew and Abby died, Lizzie had about three thousand dollars in the bank, plus she had some investments some shares, stock, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Today's value is about $78,000. You said $78,000? $78,000. Again, they had the means, but they were trapped because the, the society would not have tolerated Lizzie and Emma leaving their father's house and moving into their own house on the hill. Right, without being married. Although, frankly, well, they were already 32 and 41. Right. By that time. And, you know, by that time within the household, uh, Emma and Lizzie were not taking their meals with... Uh, their dad and and Abby, uh, the house was literally divided. Emma and Lizzie lived in the front on the upstairs, the second floor. Emma and Lizzie were in the front of the house. They used the front stairs to access their bedrooms, which you had to go through Lizzie's room to get to Emma's room. My goodness, they sound like a bunch of spoiled. Freaking rich. Food. And then Abby and Andrew's room, you access through the back stairs 
the connecting door into Lizzie's room was latched and blocked by a bureau. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and Lizzie was, you know, say it was known to say mean things. She said mean stuff about Abby to one of her dressmakers and, um, it's just kind of, yeah, kind of petulant, childish. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, no, it's not that they were spoiled. It's right. that they were covetous. And they felt entitled. Right. And, you know, the sad part is they probably never even really talked about it. With anybody, even each other, you know. Although I, I doubt Andrew would have wanted to talk about his feelings. Okay, <laughs> he strikes me as a pretty no-nonsense uh, gentleman. But you know, Lizzie and Emma didn't talk about it, and. And talking about it would have opened you up to ridicule and probably, you know, judgment from other members of your social class. Right. And judgment by members of classes beneath you. Yeah, and that was that's another term that I found frequently in the different sources that I found uh, that Lizzie and Emma both were described as very haughty. You know, when they saw Abby's relatives on the street they didn't acknowledge them. They didn't speak to them, even though Abby's relatives would tell them hello. Wow. And especially with Lizzie, who they'd known since she was a very young girl. So, you want to take a quick break here? We'll we'll break, and then we'll go, we'll start with August, kind of trying to set the tone a little bit. Right, okay. Well, we'll go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Clear and Convincing. Coming to the Ola Gym, Saturday, June 29th, it's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace of Muta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion, D. Mark. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas wrestling organization are you looking for the best deals for your vaping needs and accessories then check out the guys at sub on vapors with daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices they will surely become your one-stop shop ray and the guys at sub on vapors located at 6929 jfk boulevard suite c in north rock arkansas want to see you join them on facebook twitter instagram but more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. Sub on Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
All right, we're back. Yes, ma'am. All right. I'm going to stay outside for a couple minutes. Okay. So (laughs) if you hear dripping, it's raining. Or it was raining a little while ago. So we're at August 2nd through August 4th of 1892. Okay. Apparently on Tuesday, August 2nd, the family took ill. Uh, The heat in Fall River during the end of July, beginning of August, they were under heat. They had a heat heat wave. There are varying reports on exactly what the temperatures were. However, inside the city, away from the water, you're probably 80 is going to feel like 100. Mm -hmm. 90 is going to be unbearable. Um, so it was very, very hot. Of course, food handling was not as careful then as it was today. Refrigeration methods were not as good as they are today. I don't believe that they had pasteurized milk at that time in that area. That was starting in New York City during the 1890s, but I don't think it had made it to Massachusetts And I believe the Borden family got their milk straight from the cows on Mr. Borden's farm in Swansea. Really? So they're probably – it was probably coming out of the cow, going into a tin, you know, a tin can, and then going to the Borden house. Right. Huh. And so any one of those things combined with high heat – uh, during the day could result in a case of food poisoning. There right. are varying theories. Um, there was mutton that was served about five times, but I believe that that didn't make an appearance until Wednesday. And then there was swordfish that was served at lunch, which they called dinner. And then at dinner, which they called supper. Right. So, <laughs> which is, um, I mean, so, and it could have been swordfish. That's how it is anyway. And swordfish, um, I've gotten it one time. I didn't like it. And I could see somebody getting sick. Especially if you eat it at lunch and then you, and then you reheat it and he- eat it for dinner that night. Yeah, I can so, imagine. Tuesday night and I think Wednesday, Abby and Andrew were really sick. Uh, The maid, Bridget Sullivan, was not – she was okay. And Lizzie said she was sick, but nobody really corroborated her statements that she was sick as well. She could have been, but she could have maybe not. She could have just been saying she was sick too to get attention. Right. So, So, um, yeah. She's the only one that doesn't get sick? Um, 
you know, if she didn't eat what everybody else ate and she wasn't taking her meals with Abby and her father, it's entirely possible that, you know, they ate something that made them sick. Again, food poisoning more than anything. And, you know, it sounds more like food poisoning because... We're talking about back in the day when people didn't think about things like that. They automatically went to the drama. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that, yeah. I think, well, and also Lizzie said after the murders that she'd been sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you see, so, okay. But anyway, um, so Tuesday night and Wednesday, Abby and Andrew were pretty ill. Wednesday afternoon, Sarah Morse's brother, John, John Vinicum Morse, arrived. He had remained friends with Andrew. Um, I think he'd managed one of Andrew, Andrew's farm at one time. He had recently moved back from the West and was living in Dartmouth, I think, New Hampshire, but it could have been Dartmouth, Massachusetts. Um He had relatives in Fall River that he was going to visit, and he was supposed to be picking up some oxen Mm -hmm. to sell to someone. So he came into town. He had lunch. Abby and Andrew sat with him while he ate his lunch, and then he went into town to do some other business, returned to the house, and they invited him to stay overnight. So he stayed overnight the night of the third into the fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, on the second, I believe, Abby went across the street to the family doctor, Dr. Bowen, and she did believe that the family was being poisoned. And there was apparently something of a uh, there was something of a of a an issue between Andrew and Dr. Bowen, Dr. Bowen tried to calm Abby down, sent her home, and then called on her later that day to see how she was doing. And Andrew said something to, along the lines of, we don't need you. I didn't summon you. I'm not paying you. Right. Um, so and I think that happened on the second, although it might have happened another time that Abby was ill. But Andrew could be blunt and spoke his mind. His daughter Lizzie did too. So, you know, the apple did not fall far from the from the proverbial tree. Um, so on the third, everybody retires to bed. Lizzie had been out. She told her friend Alice Russell that she was worried that one of her father's enemies was going to burn the house down around them, that they were being poisoned that everyone had been sick, uh, just kind of, I think she was almost having a breakdown. And she foreshadowed the events of the next day. Right. In that, in that conversation, because she was said, somebody's going to come in and kill father. Mm. So, the morning of the 4th on Thursday, 
uh, John Morris and Bridget Sullivan got up very early. Andrew and Abby came down. John Morris had breakfast with Andrew and Abby. He left to attend to his business in town, visit his niece and nephew. Uh, His niece had been ill, so he was going to call on her. Um, He walked to visit Onway Bossett Street, which is not too far away. And then he had been invited back for the noon meal by Andrew, so he took a horse carriage back or a train, like a streetcar, but it was pulled by a horse with a, a bunch of priests, apparently, uh, to go back to second to the Second Street house. <clears throat> Lizzie got up a little bit later. Andrew left to go downtown. Abby was tidying up in the in the downstairs. And then she went up to the second floor to make uh, to make up the room that John Morse had slept in the night before, which was the, the spare room or the guest room. Um, she sent Bridget Sullivan, the maid, out to wash the windows of the house. So Bridget was outside. They kept the house locked up pretty tight. Um, Lizzie is the only one in the house. And she gave conflicting statements about what she was doing. She said she was ironing some handkerchiefs, but then she couldn't iron the handkerchiefs because her irons weren't hot enough. So she put them on the fire and sat down and read a magazine. And then they still weren't hot enough because the fire had gone out. So she tried to stoke it and the irons never got hot. Um, At some point around 930 in the morning, Someone with a hatchet entered the guest room on the second floor in the front part of the house and struck Abby 19 times in the head and neck, killing her. Right. Around 1040, 10.45, Bridget has finished washing the windows outside. During the time she was outside, she didn't see anybody come to the house. She didn't see anybody going into the house. She didn't see anyone coming out of the house. She didn't hear the doorbell ring. Um, She saw no one in the yard. She was going back and forth to the barn. Nothing. But she had finished washing her windows. She'd gone back into the house, and she was on the inside washing the interior windows. She started in the sitting room, and then she made her way around to the dining room in the parlor. Excuse me. And uh, while she was in the sitting room, Andrew arrived home. A neighbor saw him go try to enter through the side door to the kitchen. The screen for that door was locked, so he came around, and he was trying to come in the front door, but his key wouldn't work. Uh, Bridget heard him trying to enter, you know, heard somebody turning the key and, you know, pushing the door, and so she came around. She had trouble opening the locks. 
She said a swear word, which she would never repeat. Uh, The most she would say is that she said Peshaw, but we all know that probably wasn't it. She refused in the inquest and the preliminary hearing and at trial to repeat the exact word she said. And um, as she said that word, because she was struggling to get the door open for Mr. Borden, she heard Mm. laughter on the stairs and looked, and there's Lizzie on the stairs at the top of the stairs, giggling. Hmm. Now, Bridget doesn't know this at the time. Spoiler alert, a few feet from where Lizzie is standing in the guest room is Abby Borden dead on the floor. Hmm. So Lizzie comes downstairs and greets her father once Bridget gets the door open and lets him in. Um, She tells Bridget and Andrew that Abby had a note, someone in town was sick, and she had gone out to see that person. Right. She didn't say who the person was. Again, Bridget never saw anybody delivering any notes and never saw anybody going into the house or coming out of it. Um. And no trace of a note was ever found. And at the time she's saying this, spoiler alert, Abby's dead in the guest room, face down on the floor. Damn. Savage. So, clue number one. <laughs> um, so then her father goes into the sitting room sits down, goes through the mail, reads the newspaper, and then he decides that, you know, he's still not feeling quite right, so he's going to lay down before lunch. And uh, Lizzie said that she helped him get settled on the couch. He took his shoes off. He put on some, uh, like a, like an in, not a smoking jacket. It was a sleeveless version of something like a smoking jacket that men wore in the 1890s. Um, and as hot as it was, I mean, it was like 83 de- degrees by noon. Right. Um, I, I mean, he should have been enjoying his shirt sleeves in his own home. But he was so prim and proper that he kept his shirt, his jacket, his coat, and everything on. Um, he didn't remove his shoes because – you know, in the crime scene pictures, he's wearing his shoes. He's not wearing slippers. Um, and he's wearing his coat and tie. Um, so he settles down on the couch. Lizzie goes into the dining room where uh, Bridget is finishing up washing the interior windows. She tells Bridget about a sale on um, cloth at a department store or whatever downtown called Sergeant's. I think, spoiler alert, trying to get Bridget out of the house. Right. But Bridget is feeling really unwell. So she says she's not going to go now. She's going to lay down before the noon meal too. So she leaves, goes to the kitchen, 
goes up the back stairs to the third floor attic bedroom that was her room. Mm-hmm. And she gets in there just as the town clock strikes 11. In the meantime, seconds after that, after Bridget goes up the stairs, someone goes into the sitting room and stands at the head of the couch where, where Andrew Borden's head is and strikes him 11 times with an axe. In the head. Face and head. Yes. Very much. Abby's was overkill too. Well, true. Uh, You know, any any one of the blows... Well, there were a couple with Abby that were glancing. There was one to her front and then the rest were to her back. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the one to the front incapacitated her and then the back was just overkill um and with andrew the same way i think they said the second blow would have killed him right and um so about 10 after 11 five after eight after lizzie sounds the alarm calling for bridget who's on the third floor, telling her to come quickly. Someone's come in and hurt father. Or that her father's hurt. Mm-hmm. Bridget comes down. She's going to look at Andrew. And Lizzie's, no, 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 go across the street, get Dr. Bowen. So she sends Bridget off to get Dr. Bowen. Dr. Bowen is making his rounds. And is not at home, so Bridget comes back, and then Lizzie sends Bridget to go get her friend Alice Russell. While Bridget's getting Alice Russell, Lizzie invites the neighbor, Mrs. Adelaide Churchill, who's a widow that lives next door, into the house. And the stories Lizzie gave, again, she told the story about Abby getting a note and going out. Uh, She says she was out in the barn and heard a groan. And came back in and found her father. Um, She says she was in the barn looking for tin to fix the screen. She tells other people she was in the barn looking for iron for sinkers for a fishing trip that she was planning to go on on Monday. Right. So she's giving people conflicting stories about where she was and what she was doing. Um, When Bridget gets Alice Russell... And then Dr. Bowen comes down, and I think Ms. Church, Mrs. Churchill got someone to call police. At 11.15, police respond. Most of the police force is at a, like a retreat in Rhode Island on this particular day. But there are a few people that are still in Fall River, and so they come, and they start the investigation And, of course, again, 19th century, they let people walk through the house. They let people go look at the bodies. They let Dr. Bowen look at the bodies. Um, They had Dr. Dolan, who was the, I guess, the medical examiner or coroner for Bristol County come in, and he did an examination of the bodies. 
Uh, he, because there were people made statements about the family believing that somebody was poisoning them or that their milk had been poisoned, he took the milk and he took the stomachs from the from Andrew and Abby to have them examined later on. Right. Uh, Abby and Andrew's bodies were at the house, either in the dining room or the cellar. The accounts are kind of conflicting on that. Um, some sources say they were in the dining room and some sources say they were in the cellar. Um, but they were in the house. They stayed in the house. Um, people came in and out. Uh, Lizzie was allowed to go upstairs to her room, and she was in her room with Mrs. Churchill and Mrs. Russell. Uh, at some point prior to her going upstairs, however, the issue of where is Abby, now that they found Andrew killed, comes up again. And Bridget says something. Do you think she's at Mrs. Whitehead's, which is her half sister? Uh, I'll if I know if I knew where it is, I'll, I would go there. Where is it? And Lizzie says, "Oh no, I think I heard her come in." Now she had never said anything to anybody until Bridget's wanting to go look for Abby. That right. hearing Abby come in, um, and it's only been a few minutes. Really, I mean, it's been less than an hour since she told her father Abby had a note and gone out. Right. So it's it's really, you know, and how could Abby right. have come in? Spoiler alert, Abby's been dead up in the, you know, guest room for since 930 in the morning, round about 930 right. in the morning. So she's got a lot of conflicting statements going on. Um, the... Dr. Bowen sent a telegram to Emma. Emma was in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, visiting the Brownells. She's got an ironclad alibi. Uh, she was not in Fall River. She was summoned by telegraph to come back to Fall River. Emma was not involved. Although later she may have covered for her little sister in the, you know, keeping a promise to her mother to take care of Lizzie. Um, But that's spoiler alert. (laughs) So uh, on Saturday, the funerals were held. After the funerals were held, the bodies were taken to a receiving vault where full autopsies were performed and the heads of both victims were taken for further examination. Right. And they went back to the house after the funeral, and the mayor came in, and it was at that point that the mayor let Lizzie know that she had become a suspect or that she was a suspect. And what's Lizzie do? Lizzie... uh, says, okay, I'm ready to go. Bring me to jail. Really? And of course the mayor says, oh, no, 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 not, you know, we're still, we're still doing our investigation. He just lets her know she's a suspect. Right. And um, then they, they, the prosecutor, I believe, 
decides to hold an inquest as an investigative tool. And the marshal at some point gets a warrant for Lizzie's arrest. Right. But he doesn't execute the warrant and arrest Lizzie. However, she is subpoenaed and she testifies for three days at the inquest. And that is where her conflicting, confused, confusing accounts of her whereabouts and movements on August 4th put her into the crosshairs of being becoming going from suspect to accused. Right. And at the end of the inquest, the arrest warrant is served and Lizzie is arrested and brought to the jail in Taunton because Fall Rivers Jail doesn't have facilities for a female prisoner. Okay. Um, she is arraigned on August 12th. She was arrested on August 11th. She's arraigned on August 12th, and she pleads not guilty. Andrew's uh, family attorney, Andrew Jennings, is representing her, but he is barred from the inquest. Why? So uh, he takes up her representation. You know, I think it's more procedural than anything else. Um, I, I, I can't. I, I can't verbalize the explanation, but an inquest is not a an adversarial proceeding. It's an investigatory proceeding, similar to a grand jury. Right, but you're being summoned. And so under it's not it's it's not a it's not a forum for uh, presentation and rebuttal of evidence. Right. It's an investigative investigatory tool. Um, he represents her at the arraignment. He then immediately, I think, goes to former governor of Massachusetts, George Robinson, and he is hired to take the case. Now, at this point, as far as Andrew's estate goes, I believe Emma is the only one that is going to inherit anything from Andrew's estate because Lizzie has been accused of his murder. All right. But Emma agrees to pay for Lizzie's defense. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, I think Mr. Robinson earned about twenty-five thousand dollars in eighteen ninety-two money, which is probably hundreds of thousands in current value. I can imagine. If you know, if if three thousand dollars is about seventy eight thousand, twenty five is probably pretty pretty penny. Yeah. Um, there's a preliminary hearing held, and 
the judge at the preliminary hearing who also presided over the inquest, uh, Judge Blaisdell, finds that Lizzie Borden is probably guilty and finds sufficient evidence to bind her over for trial. In December of 1892, she was indicted. And this was kind of interesting. She was indicted for the murder of Abby, Abby, the murder of Andrew, and then the murder of both Andrew and Abby. What? Yeah, it was, it was, I could not find the, I could only find the indictment for Andrew, uh, but I found in some of the one of the trial transcripts the indictment, the reading of the indictment is it is really interesting. That's kind of um it's kind of a CYA thing, I think. Right. That she killed Abby, she killed Andrew, she killed both Andrew and Abby. And she was <laughs> facing the death penalty. Right. Um, as punishment. So she went to trial in June of 1893, and the prosecution's case was strictly circumstantial, and a lot of it was based on Lizzie's accounts of her whereabouts and movements that didn't make sense. Nobody saw Lizzie with blood on her clothing or her hands or her shoes or her hair. The interval between the murders and the time that Lizzie was the only person in the house, she could have cleaned herself up sufficiently to not attract attention. Right. It's not that's not impossible. Although some people argue it's impossible, but it's not. If she took off her outer layer of clothing and killed Abby and and Andrew in her petticoat and then put her clothing on back over the bloody petticoat and then disposed of the bloody petticoat in the middle of the night when nobody saw she could have done it you know um and in fact they found in the in the basement near the near the area where the clothes washing was done they found a pail full of bloody rags dr bowen assured the police that Lizzie had been on her menstrual cycle, and so there was no need to further examine the rags. Hmm. And police took his word for it. But that pail of bloody rags could have been petticoats cut up and disposed of. Absolutely. In, you know, in plain sight. And then explained away as being part of menstruation. Of course, no man is going to want to delve any further into that topic. Thank you very much. There was also a drop of blood on a skirt, 
that was also, you know, with menstrual blood. And nobody questioned it further than that. <laughs> so, you know, um, but, uh, you know, that was, that I think that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Although there was only rudimentary blood typing, and I think even that was still, you know, not scientifically uh, widely available to even have been able to tell anything, although they could have examined the rags to see what material, you know, what they were originally. Because you didn't go to a drugstore and get products like we get now. Mm-hmm. You used rags and things like that. So, um, and I, I won't delve any further because I know that's like probably heaving you out. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> okay. So, and then um, one of the most interesting things that I found about the trial is that it was before a three-justice panel, which was the procedure in Massachusetts for a capital case. One of those judges was appointed to the bench by none other than Governor George Robinson. Robinson. Hmm. Okay. So in today's world the prosecution would have sought to have judge it was Justin oh goodness it was Justin no it was Justin I'm looking up his name here hang on a second oh it was Justin Dewey Mhm. He had been appointed by George D. Robinson in 1886. Okay. <clears throat> but they didn't seek to have him recuse himself and so he was one of the judges presiding. The biggest blow to the prosecution's case came when two one huge bit of evidence and one little piece of evidence were excluded. Uh, The big piece that was excluded was all of Lizzie's inquest testimony. Because she was a suspect. They had obtained an arrest warrant. She was compelled to appear at the inquest and she was not warned by Judge Blaisdell as to her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Oh, man. She wasn't advised that she wasn't – She they could not compel her to testify. That's, so she wasn't given the option of choosing not to testify. Essentially, she benefited from the Fifth Amendment in both U.S. Constitution and Massachusetts Constitutions which, you know, she benefited from not receiving a warning similar to what the warning is in Miranda. That anything you say in this proceeding can and will be used against you at trial. 
Right. So um, they excluded all of her inquest testimony, which I think hurt the prosecution mostly because in his opening statement, he mentioned her confusing stories and her, but then he was never able to bring in all the inquest testimony. He got in bits of it through other witnesses like Bridget Sullivan that the accused told you her mother had a note and was gone at the time her mother's body was lying face down on the floor on the second floor. Right. Which I I think I skipped over how Abby's body was discovered. Um, Lizzie wants to send somebody to look for Abby because she doesn't want to discover both Andrew and Abby. That would look really bad, right? So she wants to send Bridget, and Bridget's like, I'm not going up there by myself. So then Mrs. Right. Churchill says, I'll go with you. And as they get up to the top of the stairs, the door to the guest room is open, and underneath the bed they can see Abby's body. So they know Abby's dead. And then doctors determine Abby died about 930, and Andrew died somewhere around 11. So it's about an hour and a half between the two murders. Right. Um, another thing that kind of worked against the prosecution is they mentioned a druggist and two customers who identified Lizzie as a woman who came in on Wednesday trying to buy prussic acid, which is cyanide. And the druggist wouldn't sell it to her. Mm-hmm. And the prosecution was not allowed to bring that in because it was too remote in time which, excuse me, it was the day before these murders. Right. That's not remote in time. That's like, okay, she can't poison them with cyanide, so <laughs> she wants the job done. She gets her a hatchet and does it that way. Um, and the defense case basically was just challenging every every bit of the prosecution's case and asking as many witnesses as testified, did you see any blood on her? No. No more questions. Um, and then the the nail in the prosecution's coffin was the jury charge given to the jury by Judge Dewey, which basically was a summation of the defense case. Mm-hmm. And a rejecting rejection of the prosecution's case. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> that was, you know, that was the trial. The the jury went out, and they actually. Um, I think I read somewhere that they they actually went in, they took the first vote, found her not guilty, but decided to wait an hour to come out with the verdict so that it would look like they'd actually, you know, given it some consideration. Right. And she was acquitted. Uh, Lizzie and Emma lived in the Second Street house for a few months after Lizzie's acquittal in June. 
and then they bought a home on French Street on the hill, which Lizzie named Maplecroft, and moved to the hill. It was a large house, a beautiful house. They had staff, they had maids, they had they had chauffeurs, they had cooks, everything. Um, they inherited equal portions of Andrew's estate, which was estimated at between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand, which in today's money was about eight million dollars. Um, and with their parents dead, they could they could go out on their own, and society would accept it. Um, Lizzie wanted to stay in Fall River because she thought that she had a lot of support from the society, from the congregational church, uh, where she had been very active. And I didn't talk about a lot of her civic her civic duties and things that that she did um, more for brevity's sake than anything else. She was very active in the community and did all the proper things in society that a single woman of her station would do. Um, <clears throat> but when she was acquitted, even though they had rallied to support her after her arrest and during her trial, once she was acquitted, it didn't matter that whether she was innocent or guilty, she was essentially shunned. Weird, I know, but I think she had support from women's groups and women's movements in the New England area, but within Fall River, I don't think she had as much support. as she believed. Or perhaps they just didn't think she could have done it, and so they supported her, but then once she was uh, acquitted, the the stigma that she might have done it. Mm-hmm. Because it didn't matter, you know, it whether the boy and the girl did anything. They were alone in a carriage after dark, and that was it. It didn't matter. Right. Um, so Lizzie wanted to live the life that she had been denied while she lived at Second Street, and she did. And she wanted to enjoy herself, and she wanted to enjoy the money. Emma wanted a quiet life. She wanted an unassuming life. Lizzie became very active in supporting the theater and actors and actresses. And in 1905, Lizzie and Emma had a falling out. We don't know exactly what it was about, although a newspaper report and a comment from Emma suggest that it was the friendship that Lizzie had made with an actress by the name of Nance O'Neill. Um, during that time in the 19th century, actors or actresses were on the same level as prostitutes. They were presumed to be wanton vixens who weren't proper 
good Victorian women or proper good Christian women. So they were very looked down upon. And so whether it was the stigma of associating with theater people or the lavish parties and the ostentatious life Lizzie was living, uh, she and Emma had a falling out. Emma moved to New Hampshire, and they never spoke for 25 years. Hmm. <clears throat> um, Lizzie's health started declining when she was in her mid-60s. Right. And on June 1st, 1927, she died of complications from pneumonia, which was a likely complication of a gallbladder removal surgery that she'd had earlier that summer. Okay. Ironically, nine days later, Emma Borden died from either kidney issues, because she was like nine years, ten years older than Lizzie. So she was in her 70s. Um, or she fell and broke her hip and died from complications of, of the broken hip. Perhaps some kidney issue that had been asymptomatic until she broke her hip and then you know that became compromised and symptomatic and she died. Um, the entire Borden family is buried in the same plot in the Oak Grove Cemetery in Fall River. Wow. Andrew, Sarah, Abby, Anna, Lizzie, Alice. Hmm. Uh, Lizzie changed her name, not officially, but unofficially, sometime after her acquittal and after moving to Maplecroft, she be- began calling herself Lizbeth A. Borden instead of Lizzie Andrew. She even had right. cards made up with Lizbeth Elizabeth A. Borden. Um, again, she was a little bit ahead of her time because, you know, she did have a little bit of forward thinking going on. But she also was very much a product of her time because she was constrained by what was acceptable by the standards of of the Gilded Age society rather than what made her happy. And I I don't know if we really have time to go over the other suspects um, because it's it's at 10 and we're going to be going into overtime now. Right. Um, right. Well, what we could I think I, I could can do uh, at the beginning. Let of me, the show. Well, let me do this real quick. Um, let me go through. There's a, there's a listing that I found on a couple of sites and this right. kind of, kind of condenses my thoughts about it since, I started researching the case after the 1975 movie with Elizabeth Montgomery where Lizzie was depicted committing the murders in the nude. 
which I don't think a good Victorian woman would have done, but doing it in a petticoat would be okay. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, You know, if not Lizzie who, she was the only one who had the opportunity. Uh, John Morris was visiting relatives. Emma was out of town. Andrew was running errands in town. And Bridget was outside washing windows. There's no evidence that anybody came into the house. And that house, it's a railroad house, so all the rooms are connected. You don't have a hallway where you can sneak down a hallway and duck into a side room and nobody's going to see you. You know, you have, if you want to get to the closet in the kitchen to hide, or if you want to hide on the back stairs, you've got to go through the sitting room, the dining room, the kitchen to get there. If you kill Abby on the second floor and you want to go some, you know, you want to hide somewhere, there's a teeny, teeny, tiny closet up there, or you can hide in Emma's room or Lizzie's room because you can't get to the back of the house. You can't get to Andrew and Abby's room in the bigger closet in the back. So, you know, there's, there's nowhere for an intruder to lay in wait for 90 minutes. Without right. being seen, uh, without being heard, um, they also found no signs of forced entry to the house. And unusual for the time, the Borden house was locked up tight, twenty-four-seven. Mm-hmm. If somebody went out, you know, if if. If Andrew went out to the barn and he was going to be out there for a while, Abby would go behind him and lock the screen door. And then when he was ready to come back in, somebody would let him back in. Also, Lizzie claimed to have been downstairs either in the kitchen or the dining room when Abby was murdered, but she didn't hear anything. You know, she didn't hear the struggle or the sounds that were probably made when a person bludgeoned Abby with a hat with a hatchet. And the distinction between a hatchet and an axe, I believe, is the length of the handle and the size and shape of the blade. Right. So this was a hatchet. And I think a hatchet has a little blunt end that can be used like a hammer. Right, yeah. It does. And a sharp end. And then an axe usually has two edges. Um, so then um, another reason is that when Andrew came home, Lizzie told him there was a note and Abby had gone out. Which we know is untrue because we know Abby was dead in the guest room. Um, So why would Lizzie tell him this? And while Bridget was washing windows, she didn't see anybody deliver a note. No note was found, and no one ever came forward to say that they delivered a note. Right. So that was a blatant, obvious lie. You know, why would Lizzie lie if she didn't kill Abby? 
and she didn't want Abby to be discovered. And there's a good reason that the, the murders happened in the order that they did. When Abby died, her entire estate, because she was childless, passed to Andrew. If Andrew had been killed first, Abby would have kept her estate and would have inherited a dower portion of Andrew's estate, thereby reducing the portion that went to his daughters. Hmm. Uh, Then there's when Bridget came back in, after Andrew came home, Lizzie is trying to get Bridget out of the house. By telling her about the great sale over at Sargent's on the on the dress goods. Um, then another reason, a police officer in the afternoon, because he'd heard that Lizzie had gone up into the loft of the barn, he went up there. First of all, he said it was stifling hot. Second, he could observe the dust on the floor, and there was no disturbance in the dust. Now, some people say, well, workmen were there a few days before, so the dust had to have been disturbed. Well, if the workmen were working downstairs and not in the loft, the dust wouldn't be disturbed in the loft. Not to mention that the streets were made of dirt. So... Workman could have been in a loft two days before, and the dust could have reaccumulated between the time they left and the time. But on August 4th, the dust on the floor was undisturbed. And again, it was stifling, and I know second floor of a barn from personal experience in Delaware, it gets stifling hot because heat rises. Right. And like, you know, if the ambient temperature outside is 83 degrees, the barn could easily be 100 degrees, especially if it's if it's closed up and there's no circulation of air. So, um, and then there's the, you know, the strain relationship with Abby and the strain relationship with Andrew. My personal belief has always been that Andrew whether he meant it or not, may have threatened to cut off both Lizzie and Emma because of their demanding attitudes, because of their haughty attitudes, because of the way they treated Abby, because of the way they treated her family. He could have threatened to cut them both off and leave them with nothing. And that would have been, for Lizzie, like a declaration of war. And it doesn't matter whether he did it, whether he took any steps to do it. All it takes is the threat to do it. It's what Lizzie believes, not what actually is. You know, that's, that's the thing with motive. Motive is a state of mind. And so she just has to think 
that Andrew's going to do it and not want it to happen. And so she has to, you know, she has to head it off at the pass, so to speak. And so she takes care of Abby because Emma and Lizzie don't want to have to rely on Abby if Andrew dies before she does. Sure. Um, and I think also that Lizzie had had a very close relationship with her father, but in the years since the house debacle, I don't think that they had been as close. And I and she may have taken it personally if he did not desire to have a close relationship with her. If he didn't talk to her, if he didn't have time for her, if he did not listen to her. Um, Some people theorize that uh, at some point, kids had broken in the barn and Andrew went in and killed all the pigeons, which Lizzie had set up a pigeon coop and treated them as pets. And, you know, while Lizzie was very sensitive and very caring about animals, um. I I don't know that that would have been it could have been one brick in the wall as far as motive but I think ultimately the final motive was a threat from Andrew during a family fight prior to Lizzie and Emma going off to Fairhaven to visit that led to the decision to go ahead and, you know, take care of them now. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it was, ultimately, I think it was money. I think they knew their father was worth a lot. And they resented that he wasn't living up to the standards that he could afford in the long run. And there was probably a lot of resentment. And, you know, I think it's a a product of the times because they didn't talk about that. You know, you didn't – everything that went on in the household was private, and it stayed private, and you didn't talk about it. And you didn't, you know, if you had visitors at the house, you didn't show any signs because then you'd become the, you know, fodder for gossip. True. And that was, you know, that was death to your reputation and your your place in society. So um, you just, you know, you hit it. You hit it, you repressed it, no matter how angry you got. I think every now and it would leak out because every now and then Lizzie would say something ugly about Abby. Um, But for the most part, it was kept behind closed doors. There are other theories about uh, potential incest. I just don't, I've never found anything that would corroborate it. No, and I don't 
Um, you know, like I said, the, the, the number of blows to the skulls was intense anger, but not necessarily anger as a result of abuse. Right. Just intense anger for any number of slights and uh, unfair practices since Lizzie's mother died. And then finally, on Sunday, three days after the murder, uh, another thing that was, I think, I think it was brought brought up for the jury, but they didn't really connect the dots. Lizzie was seen by her friend Alice Russell in company with Emma burning a blue corduroy dress in a kitchen fire. Lizzie claimed that she had chosen to destroy the dress because it was stained with paint. It's a dress that apparently was not discovered during any of the searches of the house. It was underneath a a cabinet in the kitchen. And so it was somehow missed by the police. Um, But interestingly, for me, what happens, Alice Russell says, you really shouldn't have done that, Lizzie. And Lizzie looks at Emma and says, Emma, why did you let me do that? Hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, it's not my fault, it's Emma's fault. Um, So a bit of a manipulative personality. I think another reason Lizzie was acquitted was she wore these huge flowing dresses during her trial that made her appear smaller than she was. And then she was coached to appear very quiet and calm and demure all throughout the trial. So she cried at the right times. She hid her face and her eyes behind a fan at the right times. And when they brought her father's skull out and fitted a hatchet blade into the defect, she promptly faded away. Right. And it was all, you know, like stage management. Um, But I think the ultimate... Ultimately, she was just acquitted because nobody believed that a woman could have carried out the crime that she carried out. I think it, you know, it it, it couldn't be anybody but Lizzie because Lizzie's the only one that was in the house at the time each of the murders was committed. Who was unaccounted for in the house. You know, Bridget says she was up in her room. Nobody found anything to dispute that. Uh, When Abby was murdered, Bridget was outside washing windows and several people saw her. So, you know, Lizzie's the person that's in the house during both murders. And her statements about going to the barn when her father was murdered, just weren't believable. True. So, um, and that, another reason that the um, the inquest testimony was excluded was because she was getting morphine 
from Dr. Bowen. However, um, I don't think she was getting morphine until after her arrest regularly. But I think she'd gotten morphine a couple times to help her sleep between the day of the murders and the beginning of the inquest. Okay. So, but that was, that was, uh, that's Lizzie Borden. It's something, all right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so that's, I figured we'd look at an old, old case. And, you know, maybe someday we'll look at the other suspects. Although I just don't. Most of what I've read on the the different books, when it comes to these other suspects, there's a lot of speculation and a lot of manipulation of testimony to make it mean what you want it to mean, even though it's not that actually – that isn't what the testimony says. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know how I, I don't like that. (laughs) <laughs> right. For example, um, for example, one of the ones, uh, one of the other suspects is John Morse, the uncle who showed up on Wednesday with no luggage, stayed the night, left the house, and then came back in the afternoon. And even though all this hullabaloo was going on around and outside the house, he lollygagged around and ate some pears before he finally went up to the house and said, oh, what's going on? Um, they say that, well, he, he gave a statement about he was visiting a niece and Dr. Bowen was there. And at the time he says Dr. Bowen was there, Dr. Bowen was at the boarding house. Well, that's not what he says. He doesn't mention Dr. Bowen's name at all. He mentions he was on Way Boston Street, gives the name of the niece that he was visiting someone from the household corroborated his statement and said that she remembered because Dr. Bowen had been around that day but doesn't tie the time John Morse was there to Dr. Bowen's visit at all right and then another member of the household does tie the time of the visit to about the time that Dr. Bowen called and said he couldn't make it because he was he had been called to the Bordens. Like I said, the guy was in a horse uh, a horse tram with a bunch of priests mm-hmm. who corroborated. At the time Andrew was being murdered, who corroborated him being there, and there was corroboration for him, you know, at nine thirty when Abby was murdered. But again, he would have had to sneak into the house, kill Abby, sneak out, hide somewhere, sneak back in, kill Andrew, and then sneak back out, get across town, and get the horse train back. I mean, you know, it's it's just, it's too complicated. 
and like it, hmm. you know, it, it it conflicts with a lot of the known facts. Nobody had to sneak in the house to kill anybody because Lizzie was already there. Okay, good point. So, anyway, well, that is it. Like I said, I'll, I'll keep my stuff, and maybe we'll talk about the other suspects another time. Okay. Or I sent you the I sent you the document. Mm-hmm. Why don't you look at them and and look and see who you want to talk about next week? Okay. Or the week after, or whenever. Or maybe we could we could start on Sundays. We could start doing a um a, a supplement or a bonus to get to okay. what we couldn't get to on Tuesday. <laughs> All right, you ready to put a bow on this one? Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more. You can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Join us on Tuesday, February 18, 2020 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 50, State of Louisiana versus Antoinette Frank and Rogers Lacoste. On March 4, 1995, New Orleans police officer Ronald A. Williams II, Ha Vu, and her younger brother Kwong Vu were murdered during a robbery of the Kim An restaurant in New Orleans East. Chow Vu, her brother Kwok, and Vui Vu were able to hide in a cooler and escape to summon help when the perpetrators left the restaurant. The robbery and murders were an inside job carried out by NOPD officer Antoinette Frank and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Rogers Lacaze. After dropping Lacaze off at an apartment complex, Frank picked up a patrol car and returned to the scene to pose as a responding officer. When Chow Vu saw Frank coming in through the back door of the restaurant, she rushed out the front door where additional responding officers were gathered. We'll talk about the evidence against Frank and Lacaze, their trials, appeals, and post-conviction claims, and the controversy surrounding the suspected murder weapon, a 9mm pistol Frank obtained from the NOPD evidence room. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.